Today, we are going to hear the word of God from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61. We are going to read from the verse 10, and then we move to the chapter 62 until the verse 5. Chapter 61 from verse 10, and then chapter 62 to verse 5. I delight greatly in the Lord, my soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorned his head like a priest, and as a bride adorned herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till the her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation, like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be crowned of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer you will be, they call you deserted or name you your land desolate, but you will be called Habsebath and you will land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will you, builder, marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will you, God, rejoices over you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now we are going to read it in Spanish. Vamos a leer en el capítulo 61 del libro de Isaías, versículo 10 al capítulo 62, versículo 5. Esta es la palabra del Señor. Me deleito mucho en el Señor, me regocijo en mi Dios, porque Él me vistió con ropas de salvación y me cubrió con el manto de la justicia. Soy semejante a un novio que luce su diadema o a una novia adornada con sus joyas. Porque así como la tierra hace que broten los retoños y el huerto hace que germinen las semillas, así el Señor Omnipotente hará que broten la justicia y la alabanza ante todas las naciones. Por amor a Sion no guardaré silencio, por amor a Jerusalén no desmayaré, hasta que su justicia resplandezca como la aurora y como antorcha encendida su salvación. Las naciones verán tu justicia y todos los reyes tu gloria, Recibirás un nombre nuevo que el Señor mismo te dará. Serás en la mano del Señor como una corona esplendorosa, como un diadema real en la palma de tu Dios. Ya no te llamarán abandonada, ni a tu tierra te llamarán desolada, sino que serás llamada mi deleite. Tu tierra se llamará mi esposa, porque el Señor se deleitará en ti y tu tierra tendrá esposo. Como un joven que se casa con una doncella, así el que te edifica se casará contigo. Como un novio que se regocija por su novia, 
así tu Dios se regocijará por ti. Esta es palabra de Dios. Amén. Let's pray together. Lord God, what a gift it is to come together to worship you, to acknowledge all that you have done in us and amongst us, and to proclaim your praise. Lord, to gather around your word and know that you reveal yourself to us. What, what an extraordinary thing that is. Let us not take it for granted. Let us not be dismissive of that great gift. But rather, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see our ears, that we would hear, open our minds, that we would come to know and understand your word, our hearts, that we would feel its power. Then we ask, O oh God, that you would open our hands, that we in response would offer grace to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to, to just pause for a moment and offer a word of thanksgiving and acknowledgement to the one who has the most significant job today. Her name is Anna Vargas, and she is sitting in the back of the sound booth, and she is going to translate my sermon live for all of our Spanish language worshipers that are listening uh, through headsets. So let's uh, offer a word of celebration for her gifts. She's amazing. She really is. Well, I love in uh, every once in a while, it seems that pop culture will throw me a bone. Uh, and uh, I, it typically comes for me in, a, in the, the means of a throwback. Uh, whenever I was growing up, I loved the, the show Quantum Leap, right? Who didn't love the show Quantum Leap? Uh, and now the, the Lord has seen it fit to inspire someone to remake it, recast it, and bring it back for the next generation's enjoyment. Uh, if the next generation watches it, it's probably just for people like me to watch it, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, but one of the things that's interesting, Quantum Leap is, is a show where, where there's someone who moves across space and time and lands in a new location, a new uh, time in history. And the first thing that has to be done for the leaper is to identify where am I? When am I? And what am I doing here? Who am I? And, and I, I think that sometimes when we read scripture, uh, on a Sunday morning, we, we just open the Bible and here we are, and, and we don't necessarily know where we are or when we are or who we are, and, and, and we can find ourselves quite confused. So I want us to take one of those leaper moments and pause and say, we're in Isaiah 61 and 62. And if we begin to peruse around this text, uh, we'll notice very quickly some language that is entirely familiar to our ears. It, it peaks up for us as Christians that, that might not be as familiar with the Old Testament, that might not be as familiar with the prophet Isaiah, but we hear something that resonates. It comes from the very beginning of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And we hear it because we know of the story of Jesus. Jesus in the gospel 
of Luke. Uh, in chapter 4, he gathers uh, in his hometown in Nazareth, and, uh, and he's invited to preach. He's there in this synagogue, and, uh, and, and it's time for him to, to offer a word. And so in, uh, just to read verses 16 through 20, uh, one, we're going to hear why this passage of Scripture in Isaiah is so important for us to connect with. Jesus went to Nazareth, it says, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went up to the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Did you hear that? Jesus just said that the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61 are fulfilled in him. So whenever we open Isaiah 61 and we read the concluding verses of 61 and the continuation of the same prophecy in the opening of Isaiah 62, we are to hear Jesus. We are to see Jesus in this passage and know that, that, that what is spoken of, what is prophesied, is concerning Jesus. In fact, it's fulfilled in Jesus So it is absolutely appropriate and necessary for us to land in this passage and to read Jesus into it. Because Jesus reads himself into it and puts himself there. So we're we're going to work our way backwards through this passage. If you have your Bibles, I want you to see that we're going to start in 62.5 and work our way back. And and we're going to orient ourselves understanding that this is connected to the purpose statement of Jesus. And Jesus is saying that this is fulfilled in him. To begin with, in uh, in, in verse 5 of chapter 62, it says that uh, your builder will marry you. Your builder will marry you. Now, we have a lot of names for God in the Christian tradition. We talk about God as creator. We talk about God as maker. We talk about God as potter. He is the potter and we are the clay. But, but we don't often hear the language of builder. And I think that we're, we're to hear in this that, that this This God who marries us is one who has given us life and is giving us new life. This God is one who has created and is creating in you and in me. And together we have one who is building us up into his people, building us up into a holy nation, building us up into a royal priesthood. And yet he is also seeing it fit to marry you. 
the bridegroom and the bride. We are the bride of Christ. And God has made a way for us to be married to God. Us to be married to God. For those of you that are married, uh, I want you to think back to, to that moment in your uh, life where that thought of potential marriage uh, to your spouse first entered your mind. It probably arrived with some fear and trepidation, some, some, some awe and wonder, but that first moment where you thought, I think I'm supposed to, I think I want to, I think I will marry this person. And for most of us, that, that moment is something that happens internally in some internal dialogue or in some internal fluttering of the heart or in the stomach. Something is taking place there, and, and we are wondering, for some period of time, is this reciprocated? Is this feeling that I have authentically felt and experienced by this one that I love? And, and, and I, th I think that it's, it's important for us to acknowledge that that space in between is a space of awe, a space of wonder, and a space of hope. And for 50% of us, statistically speaking, we get to hear from the other when first that they are thinking that about us. And so for the 50% of us in the room that got to hear that first from the other one, what was that like? Especially for those of us that felt it first, but didn't know that whether or not they felt the same about us. It was a moment of relief. <laughs> it was a moment of excitement. It was a moment of, wow, how did that happen? Like, I know where I am. I know who I am. I don't know how this one would think that of me. And it's all because of that space of fear within us whenever we have that, 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 that first thought, that space of fear and, and anxiety. Where does that come from? The scripture uh, uh, doesn't leave us empty or void in that space. In verse 4 of 62, it identifies two names that we might feel, uh, we might experience uh, as identifiers of who we are or who, uh, who, what, what our land is, where we are located. And it uses two words. It says deserted or desolate. You will no longer, no longer will they call you deserted or your name be desolate, deserted and desolate. And I think that that is all too often how we consider ourselves. We are unworthy. We don't feel as though uh, we deserve the love that others would lay upon us. And when we have to consider such a vast outpouring of love, like one who is desiring, wanting, planning, preparing to marry us, we're like, wow, me? That's me? And there is such great tenderness and joy in that. 
So what we see in the scripture, there's, there's in, in English, uh, we have two really odd words. Uh, in Spanish, they totally, av- uh, in, in the scriptures, they totally avoid these two odd words. And so Anna's going to be helping me out as I, I, I walk through this piece. You probably heard words that Dario said and you thought, was that just like uh, his accent? No, it wasn't. They are absolutely weird words. Hes- Hefzebah and Beulah. Hefzibah and Beulah. Hefzibah literally means my delight is in her, and Beulah means married. Now, have you ever heard uh, the word Beulah before? Uh, if you have heard the word Beulah, you might have heard it in a song called Beulah Land or Sweet Beulah Land. And if you haven't heard it, please pause for a moment, and you'll come back with me in a second. But, but if you've heard the song Sweet Beulah Land, it was probably at a funeral for a woman named Bertha or Martha, uh, a, a southern, uh, older uh, funeral, and, and they wanted to sing Sweet Beulah Land, and you wondered, what the heck is this song talking about? But Basically, the the song means uh, my eternal marriage. My arrival into my eternal home where I am married to God. And so it's this transformation from desolate and deserted to now flourishing eternity with God. And this is the move that we are being invited to take Today, from I am unworthy to God has made me worthy. I am unable on my own to God is making a way for me. God is doing this thing. It's restated in English so that we don't have to wade through Hesphabah and Beulah. Instead, now it comes to us and says at the end of verse 4, For the Lord will take delight in you. And your land will be married. The Lord takes delight in you. And you will be married. A marriage doesn't take place without two parties. And if we are the bride, then who is the bridegroom? Who is our bridegroom? Well, for us... Uh, we are, as I said earlier, because we know of Luke chapter 4, to read Jesus into this text. But Jesus doesn't even leave it that ambiguous, uh, only referring to the beginning of chapter 61. He also refers to himself very specifically in a way that helps us to know that if we are the bride, that Jesus is the bridegroom. It comes to us in the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. We're going to read verses 19 and 20, but to set the stage for a second, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and the Pharisees say to Jesus, Jesus, uh, other disciples, they fast, but your disciples, they do not fast. Why don't your disciples fast? Is this your doing? And if so, can we, in essence, catch you in a trap? Here's what Jesus says in verse 19 and 20. And for anyone that knows Isaiah, this is startling, shocking that he would be so clear about his identity. He says, 
Jesus answered the Pharisees, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. Jesus identifies himself as the bridegroom. So that whenever we read Isaiah 61, we are to see Jesus in this position and know that Jesus is the one that is making the way for all of this to happen, for our marriage to take place. So we're going to walk just a few steps earlier in the text of what we read. And I want you to see in verse 10 this beautiful language about who Jesus is is and what he is doing in preparation for our marriage. In verse 10 it says, For he has clothed me in garments of salvation, and he has arrayed me, arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Clothed in garments of salvation and arrayed in a robe of righteousness. That word arrayed just pops off the page to me because it's so odd. Uh, We don't normally talk like that. To be arrayed in a robe is to, uh, in essence, ritualistically be covered in a way that you cannot do on your own. A covering that you can't accomplish on your own. And it says that, that, that this one, this bridegroom, this Jesus is, is covering you, clothing you in salvation, arraying you, covering you in a robe of righteousness. My kids uh, and I, we have different rituals, and it seems like each of the kids like, adapts the rituals to their own liking. I remember, I'm not going to say which one of my kids uh, to save potential embarrassment, uh, but one of my kids, uh, whenever I tucked them in, always loved for me to tuck them in tightly. And it was, it was something that they couldn't do on their own. And they wanted me to, to get on the bed, and, and, and I would tuck them in like a taco. And I would take my arms, and I would, and put the blankets all the way underneath, And I would just tuck them in so tightly that they would be absolutely snug in bed. And then we would pray, and I'd give them a kiss on their forehead, and I'd tell them goodnight. They always needed to be covered in a way that they could not accomplish on their own. And it was a signal that something had changed. The time had come for rest and peace. Those are memories that I'll treasure. You you have those that you treasure with your family. But I think about this, this covering, this clothing, salvation, righteousness, all ours through the bridegroom, accomplishing something that we could not do on our own. This question then rises within us. If Jesus is offering us salvation, if Jesus is offering us righteousness, why do we still at times have a lack of assurance? We sing songs, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. 
and we yearn for that assurance because we could have head knowledge, but we're yearning for a heart conviction that requires some form of transformation in us. I think about Wesley, John Wesley, uh, the founder of Methodism, the Methodist movement of which we are a part. And in his journals, he writes about his conversion uh, or his assurance, the assurance he has in his heart of his salvation, of his uh, righteousness in Jesus. Uh, by the way, I have given this portion already in print to Anna, so she's not going to be <laughs> translating as I read it. Thanks be to God. Uh, these are from his journals. In the evening... I went very unwillingly, by the way, this is a pastor writing about going to a church service. Come on, testify, right? Some of you might be here this morning, you're like, mama drugged me, or, 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 or husband drugged me, or wife drugged Hey, it even happens for pastors, get this, Wesley, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, wrote, in, in the evening, I went very unwillingly. To a society in Aldersgate, that's a gathering of believers, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. And at about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, Christ alone, I felt my heart strangely warm. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and of death. This is John Wesley, 13 years after he began the Methodist movement, 13 years of leading people into right relationship with God through methodical forms of discipleship. It, what, a, what a glorious work had already been accomplished, and still yet he was struggling with the transition from head knowledge to heart conviction. And, and it, 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 it was so transformative that he went and had to tell his brother. Here's the second piece from his journal. Immediately afterwards, Wesley confidently shared his newfound faith with the group. And later that evening, he visited brother, his brother Charles. And here's what he said. He his brother Charles wrote, I, he triumphantly exclaimed, I believe. That's what we are looking for. That's what we're praying for, this movement from head knowledge to heart conviction. And I'm here to tell you that it takes a Holy Spirit surgery of the heart. We need a righteousness implant. We need uh, salvation from sin to be sown in. We need a Holy Spirit surgery on the heart. And that surgery might come in a moment, but it will also be required to continue on over and over throughout life. That's called sanctification. Because we might have assurance today, and then tomorrow it seems fleeting yet again, but it is the Holy Spirit's work in us through Jesus Christ, because it is not 
our doing where we create our salvation or achieve our righteousness. Rather, Isaiah 61 testifies that Jesus, the bridegroom, is clothing you, clothing you in salvation and covering you in righteousness. My my prayer, my desire for us today is to have some of this heart conviction. And then what, what what does life look like in this? Well, Scripture describes it. If you still have your Bibles out, I hope you didn't close them. the reason why we had this, this passage of Scripture, the parameters of this from verse 10 of 61 through verse 5 of 62 is because there is a beautiful parallel statement that we're supposed to see drawn together. You're going to be uh, taking a pen out. If you have your Bibles, you're going to draw a line from uh, one, one of the, uh, the statements in verse 10 to a line in one of the statements in verse 5. Uh, we started at the end and we worked backwards. And so I want you to hear this. The conclusion of what we read this morning says, so will your God rejoice over you. That, that is so hard for us to really uh, uh, rest in. God rejoices over you. Even when you feel deserted or desolate, even when you feel unworthy, God is rejoicing over you because of what he has accomplished in you through Jesus. God rejoices over you. And whenever our hearts feel the assurance that we experience in that, what are we then to do? The second line of verse 10 says, my soul rejoices in my God. God rejoices in you. You experience that heart transformation. And you then rejoice in your God. And all at once the joy of the Lord is in this place. The joy of the Lord is in you and it's in me. And the whole world sees and knows that something is different because of the resounding joy that echoes through eternity between you and your heavenly father. The builder who has married you. For you are the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. And this holy marriage echoes with rejoicing. Would you pray together with me? Holy and loving God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. It is power. It is truth. It is transformation. It is life, and it is joy. Lord, we pray that you would move in us and amongst us. We need this Holy Spirit surgery. So it's not only words that we hear or that we know, but it's assurance of salvation and righteousness in Christ that rests and resides in our hearts. Lord, let us 
along with John Wesley, exclaim triumphantly to all that we know, I believe. I believe. Thank you, God. I believe. As we continue in worship, oh God, we come before you and we offer a portion of what you have bestowed upon us, gifted us with back to the kingdom building work of your church. We pray blessings upon these gifts, upon each one who chooses this day to give sacrificially. We pray that you would be glorified and honored in these gifts and through these gifts. We pray it in Jesus' name.